Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. As the United States enters its next election cycle, our democracy is still extremely vulnerable to disinformation campaigns from Russia. Other democracies, particularly in Europe, are also vulnerable to this kind of threat and indeed have also been the target of Russian meddling. A new report from the Atlantic Council identifies some concrete ways that the United States and Europe can better protect themselves against propaganda, disinformation, and election-related hacking. On the line with me to discuss this report and its findings is one of the report's co-authors, Ambassador Daniel Freed. He was a longtime U.S. diplomat whose career largely focused on Russia and Central and Eastern Europe. The report was co-authored by Alina Polyakova of the Brookings Institute. I find this report interesting and worthy for an episode for a couple of reasons. First, it provides a useful heuristic for understanding the problem. The report breaks down and categorizes the various kinds of election meddling we've seen in ways that I find very useful. Uh, Second, and what makes this report so unique, is that the authors propose that countering this kind of election meddling can in fact be a platform for transatlantic cooperation. That is, in response to Russian meddling, Europe and the United States have an opportunity to form a new kind of strategic alliance. It can be a catalyst for cooperation. And we discuss how and why that is Uh, Before we begin, though, a big thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews of the show on iTunes. I I so appreciate it. And as a token of my appreciation, I will mail you a brand new Global Dispatches podcast sticker if you leave a review. And I know I've mentioned this before, but reviews are a very useful and helpful way to grow the audience and help other people who are searching for foreign policy podcasts find Global Dispatches. So, Write a review, send me an email using the contact link on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I will mail you uh, one of these fancy new stickers. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador Daniel Freed, a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Alina Polyakova, my co-author, and I put this together because we thought the conversation needed to move on from admiring the problem, by which I mean being horrified by it or outraged or shocked and dismayed. Um, Disinformation is with us in general. 
Russian disinformation has captured the headlines, but it is hardly new. Uh, it will Russian methods will be and probably are being copied. And the United States and more broadly, the democratic community needs to find ways to combat disinformation, which are compatible with our own democratic principles and um, our free speech tradition. So we called it not just defense against disinformation, but democratic defense against disinformation. So before I begin, let me, or before I, we, we go on, I just want to make sure you're, you're yeah. not speaking on speakerphone, correct? You're just holding your, your handpiece to your mouth? So I am. Okay, good, good. Okay, good. Um, so, so then let's get into it. What um, sort of recommendations do you make? How can, say, the United States better protect itself from this kind of disinformation campaign? Well, the first thing we did was unpack the problem. Um, we, I, for intellectual clarity, we break down the problem into three parts. One is straightforward, overt Russian propaganda, Sputnik, RT, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The second level is disinformation in the social media space, which has gotten a lot of attention, right? That's bots, trolls, cyborgs, which are human bot combinations, um, all the stuff that the uh, St. Petersburg troll farm was doing that has been written about. Mm -hmm. This is like the, the, the Internet Research Agency. Is that is that what you're referencing? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It is the so-called Internet Research Agency, which um, for the past year, year and a half, uh, those of us in and now out of government have called the, the St. Petersburg troll farm. Mm -hmm. um, and the third layer is... Uh, below the line of legality, and it is cyber hacking. Mm -hmm. And other cyber hacking tools in combination with over-propaganda and social media. Okay, so that, those are the, the three levels on which um, Russian disinformation works. Now, cyber hacking can be used for far more than disinformation, but for our purposes, we were limiting uh, cyber hacking to that which is also feeding into this, the disinformation campaign, as we saw in the 2016 elections, right? Purloined emails, then disseminated by a trolls, bots, RT, Sputnik. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the, the kind of challenge. The, another point to make right up front is that it is not a static challenge. It's constantly changing. And we have to be aware that there is no menu of static options which are going to block disinformation. Not going to happen. Our assumption is – oh, yeah, go on. Well, I, it would just seem no, – no, no, you can go ahead. What, what would you say, your assumption? Well, our assumption is that to protect democratic societies against information, you have to use many layers. Um without resorting to censorship or without violating free speech norms. And there are some legal things you can do, um, enforcing of campaign laws. There are things that governments can do. There are things that social media platforms can do and ought to be doing. And there are things that civil society can do. Uh, there are a lot of um, bot hunters out there. 
Uh, the Atlantic Council has one group. The German Marshall Fund has another group of cyber sleuths who go out into the into the digital space and identify um, disinformation campaigns. And they're very good at spotting it. And there are a lot of groups in Europe and have been for a long time. Uh, the Baltic Elves, so-called. People in the Czech Republic and Slovakia. The French cyber sleuths, the French bot hunters, were just genius at uncovering the Russian hack of the uh, Macron campaign in the last last year at the end of the election um, and and disseminating that knowledge quickly so French society understood what was up. Uh, it was a, a, a rare and laudable example of success of democratic defense against uh, disinformation. Well, I'd like to actually use that, that French example because that sure. was really interesting to me. Um, and it's not something I think could be replicated here in the United States because – Frankly, there seemed in in that French example to be like this, um, you know, this this coming together of the uh, French society against this foreign invasion, uh, this 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 hacking. Um, politically, it was sort of easier, I suppose, for the uh, French government to identify and vilify these foreign hackers. Whereas here in the United States, um, our politics are perhaps a little less. Um, unified, or I should say more specifically, uh, the ability of fringe actors to influence our politics seems to be um, heightened here in the United States than it is elsewhere in, in Europe. So our resilience against that kind of attack seems um, not to be quite as strong. Well, I'm not sure I agree. Okay. Prove there me wrong. Lot ta ta of, talk me off. Okay. There, well, the first... First of all, there are a lot of fringe parties um, in Europe and a lot of nationalist parties in Europe, some of which are, are supported by the Russians. Um, you know, you're, don't, European politics, I and mean, look at the, the Italian elections yesterday. European politics is not exactly a model of civic comedy and an ability to rally around a common set of beliefs. Um, the French were able to do this, that is, they were able to identify and react to and react against the foreign hacking, partly because they had learned from our mistakes and partly because the government acted swiftly and was supported by all of the mainstream political actors or most of them, probably not the, um, the Le Pen forces, not the Nationalist Party, but, but just about everybody else. Um, if the if the Obama administration had acted, um, well, we'll never know. Mm -hmm. It is possible that uh, that in the future, and maybe this year in 2018, um, if the U.S. or the intel the administration or the intelligence community uh, can identify Russian hacking and interference in our election, that there would be a widespread national revulsion against this and resistance to it. That would not include, of course, extremist voices or those that percentage of population which will believe anything uh, that the Russians say or anything that the conspiratorial-minded um, media extremes put out. But I'm convinced you could get um, a strong national, you know, near national consensus but in any event, you have to try. The idea that we can't do it, therefore we give up, is to guarantee failure. 
I think that we could succeed. And by the way, in, in the theory of our paper, we assume that every defensive measure you put in place to resist disinformation is going to be imperfect. That the ultimate backstop against disinformation is a more educated society, which is able to tell the difference between propaganda and reality. Just as the way, just as for generations, people understood that uh, the National Enquirer and supermarket tabloids were supermarket tabloids. They were for entertainment not to be taken seriously. There is in almost every new media, the printing press, radio and TV, uh, mass circulation dailies, yellow journalism of the 19th century. There's almost always a period where the bad guys or demagogues exploit that media and race with it and everybody's in despair. You know, the printing press resulted not just in the Gutenberg Bible, but all kinds of nasty tracts and hysterical pamphlets, um, which stirred up a lot of passions at the time. And it takes societies a while, sometimes a generation, to develop norms of behavior and sophistication to sort this stuff out. It may be that the digital space will follow a similar path. And then governments, or maybe maybe even better, civil society can help populations prepare for this. In any event, the, the theory of our piece of this article was that while you're still in a period of vulnerability as you're getting used to, as you're developing the, sophi the sophistication to resist um, disinformation in the long term, there are certain short-term fixes that can protect you somewhat. Well, well, let's talk. Can you talk through some of those? Because um, I, I know you you have a few that are geared well, both sure. towards the U.S. government, but also towards uh, Europe and and sure, society, sure, the private sure. sector. So, so what are some things that say the Trump administration can do, say tomorrow, to shore up our our defense against uh, some of these threats? Okay. Well, the first thing you can do is start um, labeling foreign propaganda organs for what they are. Like RT and Sputnik are not actually media organizations. They are um, basically propaganda outfits. And, well, and, and to its credit, didn't the, didn't the administration do that by forcing RT to register yeah. as a foreign uh, agent? And that was terrific. Um, full credit. Uh, social media companies that uh, now have the, let's say, not an obligation, but the ability to identify um, to identify uh, RT uh, as um, you know something that's been designated as a foreign agent, so they can do this. Uh, there's legislation circulating in Congress um, which would force transparency on um, for uh, social um, political and issue ads in social media. Uh, that's a, I think John McCain, Amy Klobuchar, and Mark Warner, three senators, have uh, come together with something called the Honest Ads Act to reduce the space for propaganda outfits to issue ads as if they are, um, you know, fair fair actors, which they are not. Mm -hmm. um, Europe, uh, European governments, because they don't have a First Amendment. 
are sometimes more robust in enforcing what we used to call fairness doctrines. The UK does that. Uh, Lithuania and Latvia do that. Um, I'm not wild about importing into the United States any kind of content control, but um, short of content control, transparency really works. Um, why not force issue ads mm-hmm. to identify the true source of funding? I mean, suppose there's an issue ad uh, sponsored by a group called American for, Americans for Puppies. You know, that sounds great. But if you find out that the chief funders of Americans for Puppies are actually Putin cronies, maybe you'd look at them in a different light. Maybe there ought to be, and I'm making this up, but it's in, it, it's suggested in our paper, you know, maybe there ought to be a requirement that issue ads fully disclose their true uh, funding sources. Mm-hmm. So, um, so th- I mean, that, that seems to be like a legislative um, uh, option. But I'm, I'm wondering, so, so for example, uh, you know, we're, we're speaking uh, on uh, Monday, March 5th, and over the weekend, the New York Times reported that um, of something like, you know, hundred and something million dollars appropriated to the State Department's office for, you know, countering Russian propaganda, like the Global Engagement Center, I believe it's called, uh, yeah. Tillerson has spent zero. Um, the political will, it seems, uh, is not there in in the Trump administration to do much to proactively counter this disinformation campaign. And it seems if you want to do something, you need that that political will. But also, perhaps it's not there because you know this administration has benefited from these disinformation campaigns. They wouldn't want to sort of hobble themselves politically, and that's where I think the sort of political consensus that you alluded to earlier that might exist could possibly, you know, fray. Um, I read that New York Times piece, and honestly, I think it may be unfair to the administration. I think the Global Engagement Center is trying to figure out its role in combating Russian disinformation. I think the money is very slow to be moved, and anybody familiar with the U.S. government knows that these things look like cold molasses. So um, I think the Global Engagement Center cannot be the whole answer, but I don't think it's quite as as frozen up um, as that New York Times article suggested. I think the U.S. government should do more. I think the Global Engagement Center should be given a wide mandate uh, like the EU's East Stratcom team, which is supposed to identify uh, Russian uh, disinformation. Um, I also think, uh, and the paper recommends, that the USG set up a kind of a light version of the old um, National Counterterrorism Center that is an interagency independent body where intelligence people, diplomats, diplomats, uh, DHS, Department of Homeland Security people get together to monitor Russian disinformation um, and um, the threat generally. I think that I all, but I also think that social media companies have a lot of latitude and um, to help control and limit um, the freedom of Russian and other bots and trolls. And I think they should be uh, mm, encouraged to use it. For example, uh, social media companies could identify RT and Sputnik as Russian propaganda organs. They could mute, that is, downgrade and derank uh, automated accounts. 
um, they could uh, they could change their algorithms to downgrade uh, stuff uh, stuff disseminated by bots, um, and then civil society. These you know the, these groups of like twenty five year old uh, bot hunters and troll hunters who un- who helped uncover the French the Russian hacker the French elections, um, who uncover Russian campaigns, you know in Catalonia um, during the the Catalonia referendum in Spain. Um, these groups should be funded and um, allowed to expose uh, Russian disinformation. Um, I think a combination of social media companies, civil society, supported by ISPs who can maybe help uh, identify bots, trolls, and other information coming in from the outside. I think we can start entering this, we can start contesting the digital space and pushing back. I think this is possible. So, so what makes your paper, I think, particularly interesting is that it, it, it to me at least, is that it uses um, this threat of disinformation coming from Russia as an opportunity to create new forms of international alliances, international cooperation between yep. uh, the yep. United States and, and Europe in particular, but basically between like democracies and in, in general, I think you can extrapolate. Um, can you, uh, I, I guess, sort of talk through sort of how those new modes of international cooperation might work, might might look like? What are some opportunities that, that exist that are not being fully exploited right now? Well, the biggest single recommendation in the paper is exactly as you said. Uh, we call for setting up what we call a counter-disinformation coalition, which would bring together democratic governments and civil society groups from those countries and social media companies together to uh, on a and on a regular basis with the aim of scoping out the problem and de- sharing experiences and most important developing best practices what should the standards be for transparency what procedures are available to identify and label bots trolls and cyborgs um, what are the rules about labeling and identifying uh, over propaganda? Um, how do we do all of this and still respect freedom of expression? Um, should we develop a, a, a non-binding code of conduct of standards about the responsibilities that media and social media companies have dealing with abuse of their platforms? What are the transparency standards? What should issue ads and um, what kind of regulation should they be subjected to? And the idea is to bring in all the stakeholders on a regular basis so that, um, so that standards are common on, throughout the democratic community. Now, this is not a, an international bureaucracy. It's not going to have a secretariat. It's not going to be able to issue decrees. I think Americans wouldn't want that. But coming up with a set of agreed standards among democratic governments and social media platforms can help provide social media platforms with a guarantee of stability. That is, they're not going to be subjected to short-term political whims if there's something, uh, if there are standards which they've discussed and uh, to which they've signed on, even if informally. And you also want to bring civil society groups the ones that are actually sniffing out uh, Russian disinformation into contact with governments 
and social media companies so that everybody is sharing this information in a setting, let's say, a little more conducive to getting stuff done than a, than a congressional hearing with television. Well, well so, so is, is like a, a platform, a forum like the Atlantic Council, which is you know, basically like the civilian civil society counterpart to NATO, the, 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 the way to, to bring these groups together? Well, there are a lot of interested um, think tanks. Okay, and the Atlantic Council isn't going to run this. Okay, that, but we sure want to be part of it. You bet. Um, the Atlantic Council, the German Marshall Fund, all kinds of groups over in Europe, plus the 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 bot hunters, as I talked about, and governments. Um, the the Europe, the EU's East Stratcom team is first rate. They're under resourced, but they need to be part of this. Um, Bring everybody together. Uh, governments could sponsor. We could sponsor. There are different ways to do this, but we need to we need to bring the democracies together so we're not fighting this all each on our own and in a piecemeal fashion. Uh, we need to get our act together because the Russians may be in the lead, but they're not going to be the last. What they do will be copied by others. And we need to be able to fight them without becoming them. We need to fight them in a way consistent with the norms of democratic behavior. And I'm convinced that we can do so. And the reason I'm convinced is because we did that during the Cold War. We did not become them. I, I, I mean, I, I, again, I'm, I'm um, perhaps a little less optimistic about the ability of our political system to handle the kind or to become sort of unified in, in, in the face of, of this threat where, you know, you could have like one tweet by the president could, you know, could, could give legs to a piece of Russian disinformation and could, you know, convince a large swath of the electorate and most of the members of the governing political party that this piece of disinformation is in fact correct and that's that's where and that's where i think our 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 politics have become too divisive to handle this in any appropriate way well if you're going to go the route we've suggested we need it needs to be seen as straight down the middle in the national interest and not connected with partisanship and I'm convinced that Democrats and Republicans that are serious about their country can join together on this on this basis. Now, you are certainly correct. That there's going to be some percentage of American society that would reject this, that would swallow any kind of propaganda the Russians put out. And I and I regret to say that, but you know, the Russian propaganda that they swallow tends to be extremist and nationalist and, and there's just going to be a certain percentage of society in the United States and in every other society, uh, especially in Europe, that's going to swallow this. And then there's going to be a certain percentage of American and other societies that will, on their own, reject Russian-inspired extremist propaganda. But in the middle, there are going to be a lot of people who would benefit from learning about and benefit from steps taken to limit this kind of propaganda. And the reason for my optimism is that it took American society a long time to figure these things out during the Cold War, but eventually we did. 
And I have faith that in the long run, we will uh, return to our better angels. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but what's the point in assuming the worst? Um, You might as well assume that you can make something work because the alternative is passivity and giving up. And that surely leads to disaster. Uh, well, Ambassador, uh, I hope you're right, and, and thank you. Thank you for your time, and, and I will post My a link pleasure. to your report on, on the website. This is great. All right. Well, thank you for the opportunity. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Fry. Those very helpful. And I'll, of course, post a link to the report on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Also, please feel free to email me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I I love hearing from you. I love hearing your suggestions of what you are interested in. I know I've said this before, but I I do this podcast for you. Uh, So let me know what you would like to to learn about or, or dive deeper into. Thank you all. I'll see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.